So we're going to continue in our study of Luke today. Uh, we're actually kind of, this is going to give us a break. Like we'll study Luke this week and then we're going to take a break over the next few weeks. Uh, for some of you, they may appreciate that. I had anticipated uh, finishing chapter 7. Um, I say you appreciate it, may appreciate it just for a, a bit of a change, just for a, a bit of uh, studying in a different uh, different book. But I had anticipated finishing chapter 7 this week, but if you were here last week, you know we tried to do like 16 verses. Uh, that wasn't going to happen. Uh, I tried, but whether the, the text is too rich or I'm just not that good, it's probably a little of both, but uh, it, it just didn't happen. So today we're going to be back in Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. Uh, we are going to jump right in with the reading and, and really a review because this is a direct continuation of what we did last week. And so for those that weren't here, um, you need to know what was going on last week as we build out the rest of the, the rest of the sermon. But for those that were here, you need to be reminded as well. So, so we'll just jump right in. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. It's on page 863 of the Bibles in the chairs. If, if you want to follow along there, you're welcome to do so. Or you can follow along on our Version live event. You just go to your Version app and look for live events, and you should find ours out there. <clears throat> Let's just begin reading. We'll jump right in, and by way of review, we'll do an introduction for the sermon. So beginning in verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. They reported all these things to Jesus, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they, <clears throat> when the men had come to him, when they'd come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases he, and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, we'll stop right there. We'll build out the context, and we'll kind of review where we were at. Now, John the Baptist has been arrested. We don't know exactly how long he had been arrested. We don't know how long he'd been in prison, but we know he's in prison. And so maybe a year, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. We're not exactly sure. But in that time, he had been hearing from those of his followers that had gone to hear or gone to follow Jesus. He'd been hearing from them what had been going on. And at some point, this, you know, Jesus has preached the Sermon on the Plain or Sermon on the Mount, whatever you want to call it. You, you be dogmatic about that if you want to. Uh, he had healed many, many people, done miraculous works, just crazy things. And, and his followers, John's followers, were going to John while he's in prison and telling John what they were seeing and what they were hearing. And I would imagine, I'm just guessing, that his followers, having heard John say, I got to decrease and he must increase, he's the lamb come to take away the sin of the world, hearing those things from John, I think they're seeing Jesus do these things, and I assume, this is assumption, this is not the text, we don't know for sure, but I would assume they go to, Jesus, or go to John in, a, in an attitude of celebration, like they're excited about what they're seeing Jesus do. I think we would be excited about seeing what Jesus was doing. But when John hears these things, there comes a point where John is like, man, this is just not what I expected. This doesn't seem to be the things that I was professing. This this is not the judgment I was expecting. This is not the liberation from the rule of Rome that I was looking forward to. And so rather than celebrating, there comes a point at which which his excitement about the coming one turns to doubt in the Christ that he thought was the Christ. See, in response, to, in, in response to the report that he received from his followers, he asks a question that unveils doubt. And so he sends two of his followers looking for an, a, a firm testimony, a firm witness. He sends two of his followers to go to Jesus and question Jesus. His followers show up and they ask Jesus, are you the one? Should we expect another? And in that moment, Jesus has this opportunity. I mean, he could have done one of two things. He could have stood up on a soapbox and and went on a rant about how he couldn't believe John was doubting him or asking the question that, that he was asking. Why in the world would this man, of all people, why would he doubt? That's not what he did, though. In fact, he sought to answer the doubt and provide a witness that John might continue 
to believe. In that very hour, it says, he healed sicknesses, he cured plagues. Like, and I brought this up last week, maybe you remember, you know, we've heard of the bubonic plague, the black plague. We've never heard of an orange plague or a blue plague. You know why? Because Jesus stopped it. Well, we don't know that for sure. But he stopped plagues. Like not just one or two people. He stopped illnesses that were spreading. He ended them. That's power. Evil spirits were cast out. Blind people were made to see. Deaf, dead people were raised up. Probably referring to the widow's son that he had just raised. Jesus answered the doubt. But what I, what, what I wanted to do, I wanted to do three things from this text. First, I wanted to free you. If the likes of John the Baptist has doubt, we can, we can quit putting on a show. We can quit acting like we don't have questions. We can be free to admit our doubt. You are surrounded by doubting Johns and doubting Thomases and doubting Seths and doubting yous. It's probably not a word, but you know what I'm saying. We all doubt. We're surrounded by doubters, people who struggle in their faith. We can be free from the guilt that comes with thinking that we're supposed to have all the answers at every time. What a, what a freedom that is. I wanted, to, I wanted to spend some time just thinking about why we doubt. And so we looked from the text. We looked at three reasons we doubt, three reasons John was likely doubting, and three reasons we doubt. So we doubt because of personal, uh, personal distance from the mission. We doubt from a personal view of the mission, and we doubt because of a personal experience of the mission. A personal distance, like John had been intimately involved with the work of Christ called by God into an, a, a very special role. He'd been intimately involved. And now he's stuck away in a prison, distant from what's going on. A personal uh, uh, view of Jesus' mission. It wasn't exactly what John was professing. John was preaching of a Christ coming who would bring judgment, and he is going to come and bring judgment. But in this moment, he was going to serve as a suffering Savior rather than a risen Lord. And personal experience of Jesus' mission? I mean, aren't we sold a bill of goods that says if you, if you do all the things you're supposed to do, that God's going to bless you and you'll never experience difficulty again? Like John was professing a Christ who was coming and it was, the axe was at the root of the trees. Remember how he, you brood of vipers, who told you to repent? Who told you to come out here? He's speaking to the Pharisees. And yet now he's the one facing judgment. He's the one in prison. He's the one about to have his head cut off. He was suffering. So he doubted. And, and like John, because of these things, we face doubt. Because Jesus doesn't do what we think. He doesn't act the way we expected. And even as we serve him faithfully, sometimes we face difficulty, great difficulty. At the, I, I, I'm risking going too far and preaching the rest of this message, and, and I would just encourage you, go, go back and listen to the podcast. It's, if you are struggling with doubt, my hope would be that this would serve you. At the very heart of this, at the very heart of our doubt, is the truth that, that, that more than we trust Jesus, we trust ourselves. You sum all of these things up. It's all personal. It's because we trust what we can see, what we experience, what we think, what we have determined is right and wrong, and, and, and we face that, and we believe that more than we believe him. That's why we doubt. I didn't want to leave us there. I mean, that wouldn't be, wouldn't be very servant-minded of me. It wouldn't be very compassionate of me to say, hey, this is why we doubt, now go figure that out, right? I mean, so, so from the text, again, we build out three reasons. Three, not three reasons, three ways to undo, to defeat our doubt, to find it begin to unravel. And so we looked at them from the text. Our doubts are undone when we believe Jesus, John didn't go to the rabbis. John didn't send his followers to talk to the Romans. He sent them to the source. He sent them to Jesus. He sent them to, to hear from him. He already believed, and now he's doubting. Now he's wavering. He's, he's not certain. Well, wait, wait a minute. He goes to the source. 
We need to go to the source. When we go to the source, when we study the word, when we get to know the God that is and the, and the Jesus that has come and the spirit who indwells, when we get to know them in the word, in the, in the word that God has given us, our doubts begin to unravel. They begin to be undone. When we believe not just in what we know about God, but when we believe in his capabilities, when we believe in his power in the gospel, See, our doubts begin to be undone. And it's not just any power, right? This is gospel power. Power that's restorative, that, that puts things back together. He's making blind people see, not crushing people under stones. He's, he's, he's curing sickness and, and, and plagues. He's stopping plagues. The, the, the consequence of the curse of sin, the, the working out the fruits of sin, he is, he's causing them to cease. He's causing them to stop, and he's putting wellness where sickness is. This is gospel power. When we believe in his gospel power, our doubts can be undone. But it demands we trust him more. Demands that we believe him more than we believe ourselves and believe our experiences and believe our, in our abilities. But there was one more that we looked at. It's in the next paragraph. We'll read the verses in just a second. But I want to go ahead and just point it out. So we see our doubts undone when we believe what Jesus says about who we are. You see, what we're about to read, I'll just go ahead and say it. What we're about to read is Jesus' defense of John. He could have stood on a soapbox and ranted against him. But he defends him. And the truth is, he defends every one of us. As we come to him in faith, he stands as one who speaks against those who would call us guilty. He speaks on our behalf. And when we trust what he says... Our doubts are undone. Let's just read it, verses 24 through 28. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds. So Jesus is saying this. John doesn't even really get to hear this, but but we do. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to see in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? John was not a guy who was, who was shifting and, and shaking with every wind of doctrine. He wasn't changing his opinion just because people agreed or didn't agree with him. He was standing firm in the truth of God. What then did you go out to see? Obviously, you didn't go to see a, a reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. Like, he wasn't out there looking for the popular vote. He wasn't out there parading and trying to draw people to himself or to see their value based on him. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Like, he's not just, your, he's not just Isaiah. Like Isaiah is pretty special, but he's more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Jesus has just done something spectacular and amazing. He has so radically woven his identity together with John's and John's identity together with him. That apart from John, Jesus ceases to be the Messiah. And without Jesus being the Messiah, John ceases to be a prophet. You see, here's the thing. John is who he says he is. John is the prophet who is going before the Messiah simply because Jesus has defended him and because Jesus is who he says he is. If John is not that prophet, then Jesus isn't the Messiah he claimed to be. Because if he didn't fulfill all the prophecies, if he didn't stand as the fulfillment of every single prophecy, he could not be the Christ. John's value, John's greatness is tied up in his, in his relationship. It's woven into the identity of Jesus. And the same is true for you and me because he doesn't stop speaking there. Listen to what he says next. He says, hey, among all, all people who are born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Brothers and sisters, if we get a ditch in the kingdom of heaven, We are greater than John the Baptist. 
If our identity is woven together with Christ, that's where we find our value, where we find our purpose, where we begin to find our doubts begin to unravel because no longer is the profession of the world, no longer is our own perspectives and self-esteem, no longer is, is everything that could be said about us as important as what Jesus has said. Your greatness is in him. And when we believe his words more than we believe our own, our doubts our questions, they begin to unravel. They begin to be undone. Listen, as we, as we, as we spoke about this, as we looked at this text, we, we, we summed it up with there's one main point. In Jesus, we find every reason to believe that our doubts in him are doubtable and he is worthy to be trusted. In Jesus, we find every reason to believe that our doubts in him are doubtable. They should be doubted. Like our doubts are not sovereign. Our doubts are not the, 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 built off of full knowledge. Our doubts are not built out so that they can answer every question. Our doubts are doubtable. And he alone is worthy to be trusted the way we trust our doubts if we would just simply seek Jesus out, if we would study his word, if we would walk with him in his mission... That's where we're going to see this happen for us. The reasons, the reasons that we don't, though. See, that's what we're going to deal with today. So there's a distinction to be made. There's a distinction to be made. A, a contrast that needs to be seen, connected into what we've just talked about, what we've been learning since last week. Because the truth is that every question, every doubt that, that faces Jesus, every, every question that's brought to Jesus is not driven by a heart that longs to believe him. Now, many, many people, as they approach Jesus, they're not seeking to have a doubt answered and have their faith strengthened. They're looking to Jesus and asking him questions so that they can seek to undermine him and displace him. Because if we can get rid of Jesus, well, then we can be our own savior. We don't really need Jesus. See, the truth is, is that there is a contrast between doubt that's good for us. And we looked at it last week in a positive light. Like, we need to be free to express our doubt. We all have it. There's, none of us are different in this. We all deal with doubt. We need to be free to express it. We need to be the shame removed. But we need to be honest about it as well. Not all of our doubt is driven by this desire to believe him more. Some of our doubt is really because we trust ourselves too much. The truth is, is we, don't, we, we, we can't continue to look at all doubt the same. I appreciate Charles Spurgeon's quote that illustrates this for us. He says that doubt is a foot poised to go forwards or backwards in faith. It's either going to lead us to the Christ. Like if we don't doubt our doubts, or if we'll, if we'll doubt our doubts, I guess I should say, then, then we'll get closer to him. But if we won't doubt our doubts, it's going to lead us away. Well, let's look at the text, and you'll see that Jesus clearly demonstrates this as he continues to teach, as he continues to speak. Verse 29, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. It's, it's crazy to me, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, like this is how people viewed tax collectors in that day. They're not, they're not part of all people, like they've got to be called out special. When all the people heard this, when all the people heard what God was saying about what Jesus was saying about John, the tax collectors, they declared God just, they declared him right, because they, their actions already proved it. They had already gone out, they had already been baptized by John. They believed, you're right, okay, we get it, yes, John is this great prophet. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So, so, so while many people went out to him, and they went to him by the thousands, tens of thousands of people were following John. He had a huge influence in Jerusalem, in, in, in Judea, across all of Israel. He had this huge influence. 
But not everyone accepted everything he said. The Pharisees, the lawyers, those who were educated in the things of, of the law, the Mosaic law, refused baptism by him, rejected John, in part probably because John was so direct with them. But Jesus says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So Jesus is here dealing with this, uh, this, this differentiation. He's dealing here with this contrast that we've already begun to see. Like John had a childlike doubt. He had this, this doubt that was, was like, well, you know, I, I believe this, but it's, so, it's difficult. It's difficult. I have doubts. I have questions. Help me understand more fully. But he looks at the people of this generation and he says, hey, you're being childish. See, there is a distinction to be made between, between being childish and childlike. In Matthew 18, 1 through 5, Jesus actually tells people, he says, to come into the kingdom, to be a part of the kingdom, you must approach me with a childlike faith. And he doesn't say it exactly like that. That's a Seth version, but you can go look it up and read it. It's essentially what he's saying. You come to me with this childlike faith, like one like this child would come to me. He affirms this childlike approach. But then he looks at these people and he confronts them, ultimately condemns them in light of their childishness. And so we all know, I mean, you guys know, I mean, we all know children who are like this. We all know children. So, so, and we perpetrate this fraud on our kids every year. Not all of us do, but, but many people perpetrate this fraud on our kids every year. We play on their childlike faith. We talk about the presents under a Christmas tree being brought by Santa Claus. And we say, oh, he's going to bring Christmas presents to all the good children in the world in one night, in just a few hours. And our kids wake up and they see these presents and they're like, man, this is unbelievable. I mean, kids start questioning it, right? There comes a point where they, where they quit believing, where they've grown up enough. They quit believing and they're kind of questioning it. This seems a little crazy. Parents, the boy, they keep telling them, no, I didn't put those presents under the tree. Santa put them there. Look, he ate his cookies too. And we play on the childlike faith of children who, who out of a desire to believe, out of a desire to, to trust their parents, continue to believe this miraculous thing happened. We also, we also know kids who are a little more obstinate, not quite so trusting. I was, I was actually listening to a food show the other day. Amy was watching this, this Food Network show about kids who were, who were um, competing for, for the, the greatest kid baker in America or something like that. I don't remember what it was exactly. But, but this one boy, he's about 11 years old, says, I want to win this competition so I can prove to everyone that kids can do what adults can do. Well, that's, that's a pretty big claim. Like, kids can do everything adults can do. Now, we know as adults, we're sitting here with wisdom on our side, with an understanding of, of knowledge, and we're, we're like, wait, that's not exactly true. But some kids really think that. <laughs> and you know them. Because when you confront them and you sh- teach them from your wisdom and your experience and your knowledge, they still say no. And they still disobey. So I don't know really what kind of kid... I was, I was a terrible teen, I'll just tell you that. I mean, you can talk to my mom and you'll find out. I was a terrible teen. I don't think I was such a bad child, but I was a terrible teen. But I do remember this one time as a child, truly acting like a child. So we had been at this evangelism conference. I was about five or six years old, and it was like one of those big evangelism conferences that happened in a stadium. It might have, I don't know who it was that was there, whether, you know, it could have been some big name. There was a bunch of people there, and there was the call at the end, you know, those how, like the Billy Graham Crusades would end with the call to repentance and salvation. And the, it, it, the thing ended, and we're on the way out to go home, and we had, we had come in my dad's truck. Now, I grew up with four other siblings. And so there was five of us, and we didn't have a whole lot of stuff. 
And so if you wanted anything in our house, you had to make a way to get it yourself. Like you had to, if you wanted seconds, you had to hurry up and eat so that you could get seconds. I've had plenty of seconds. Just, I mean, I was going to get them, right? I, and, and if you wanted something, you had to make a claim for it yourself because we, we didn't have a lot to go around, so you took what you could get. Well, I had in my mind something I wanted desperately. I wanted to sit on the hump in the back of my dad's truck when we went home. That's what we called it. It was a really special place to sit in the back of the truck. This is back in the days before you had to, you know, strap kids into a child's seat. <clears throat> we were allowed to sit in the back of the truck, and I wanted to sit on the wheel well, like so that the hair, my, my hair could be blowing in the breeze. Back in the day when I had hair, too. I could sit there. I could see where I was going. I could enjoy I, I just knew that was a special place, and I wanted it so badly that as I... As I took off running so that I could be the first one at the truck, if I was the first one at the truck, I'd get what I wanted. I took off running, and I ignored the, the, the calls behind me, stop running. And I rejected the teaching that I had received to stop and look both ways before you run into a street. And I took off, and I, before I even knew what was coming, I found myself in what I remember to be a, a road with six lanes in it, three going one, three going the other. Before I even saw it coming, I heard it. I heard the squeal of the tires just before that car hit me. Because I rejected that my mom and my dad knew best. See, I was being pretty childish. Because I had determined in all my five or six years of wisdom and understanding that the way to get what I wanted was to do what I wanted. And it ultimately just led to a lot of embarrassment for me and terrible, horrific feelings. To see what I remember, what I remember after getting hit by the car was getting getting back up. I kind of on my hands and feet, and I look up and I see more cars coming. So I scramble to the rest to the other side of the road. And by this time, you know, I mean, there's tons of people coming out of this stadium. There's people gathered around me, surrounding me, and I'm embarrassed. And somewhere in the whole scheme of things, I hear that this guy's getting a ticket. Like the cops are already there and he's getting ticketed because I ran out in front of him. And even at that young age, I understood that he was paying the price because of what I'd done. So I had a lot of guilt. I didn't get to sit on the hump on the way home. I sat in my mom's lap. That's not where I wanted to sit. See, I, I thought I knew what was glory to me, what was heaven to me in that moment, was getting to sit on that hump. And even though I was convinced that I knew the right way to get it, my childish ways proved that they'll never pay off. You see, here's the thing, is that when you deal with children, you expect them to be childlike, and you expect them to be childish. But Jesus is not speaking to children in this passage. He's speaking to a generation who is obstinate and rebellious, who thinks they have the right way, the only way, the way that feels right and good to them, and they are going to reject his wisdom, his knowledge, his power, everything about him, even his own people, so that they don't have to repent so that they don't have to admit that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And you see it right here in the text. Let's just look at it a little closer. You see, here's, here's the thing. It, it, he says, what shall I compare this people, the people of this generation to? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you. This is a child's game. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. Another child's game. We sang a dirge and you did not dance. They played wedding and they played funeral and the people rejected it. The children wouldn't play it. They didn't want to play by these rules. They didn't want to do what was said here. Brothers and sisters, we run the same risk. If we're unwilling to hear Jesus' call, even in the midst of our doubt, if we are unwilling to turn to him and seek him as our 
Savior, if we are unwilling to trust him more than our doubts, we run the same risk as this generation. If you don't believe, if you don't believe that your doubts in Jesus are doubtable, you are not simply doubting Jesus, you are rejecting him. If you do not believe that your doubts, that your views, that your perspectives, that your desires, that your, that your way of life that you are defending, if you do not see that in some way as being doubtable, you are not simply doubting Jesus, you are rejecting him. This is important. This is vitally important for us to come to and recognize and own for ourselves because Jesus deals with childlike doubt much differently than he does childish rejection. The truth is, left unchecked, left alone, left to ourselves, without him caring enough to confront us, without him caring enough to call him, call us on it, we're likely to, be, to, to consider our views, our perspectives, our doubts more trustworthy than the God who put on flesh to dwell among us. We're likely to consider our, uh, our own abilities more trustworthy than the, than the power that's worked out by the Christ who came and did amazing restorative gospel miracles. We're likely to be more trusting in our ability and our own authority and our own decisions than the one who spoke truth. We're likely to trust more in the things that we determine are right and wrong and determining that we are the ones that God has, propping ourselves up above the one who God has said is the one to come to take away the sin of the world. We're more likely to trust ourselves than than him if not called on it. And so, brothers and sisters, because Jesus saw fit in the place where where John the Baptist was, was faced with doubt and received an answer, don't miss this fact that he turned and spoke to people about the rejection that their trust in other things was demonstrating. He cared too much to just let them go off into the, the, the sunset, if you will, believing too much in themselves. So, brothers and sisters, hear this call. Because the reality is, is as we trust ourselves most, as we as we internalize everything as we make everything about ourselves as we believe ourselves most we aren't just rejecting him we are displacing him we're determining that we know more than he knows that we have a better way than he has let's keep looking he says it see they wouldn't play the game They wanted to play a different game. They wanted to write their own rules. And then he shows them how that connects to him and John. He says, John the Baptist came eating no bread, drinking no wine. John came calling people to repentance. He lived in the wilderness, wore camel skin for clothes. He ate bugs and honey. Who's going to sign up for that? I mean, that's that's crazy. He must have a demon. He must have a demon. There's something wrong with that guy. His... His message was difficult. Like he was calling a very moral people, a people who followed the law, a people who, who made sacrifices to God. They had an understanding. Blood was required for forgiveness. The spilling of blood, the shedding of blood was required for forgiveness. And here's John. He's confronting these people who were counting on these, these sacrifices. He's calling them to repentance. Imagine how difficult it is for a people who consider themselves righteous to be called to repentance. It's probably not that hard for us to imagine. And many of them appreciated the message. Many of them responded to the message. Many of them demonstrated that, yes, John is right. We have to repent. We have to fall on our face before the Lord, looking for his mercy. If he is going to come, we want to be prepared, trusting in him alone. So they went and they were baptized. Many rejected. The message was confrontational. It was difficult for them to hear. But it wasn't without hope. The very fact that there was a message that was confronting them in their sin implies that there's hope. Like God didn't just to come, come just to condemn and not offer some answer. When John was calling them, he was saying, turn from your sin and, and be prepared for the Lord. There's one coming. 
You see, all wrapped up in John's message is the confrontation, uh, 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 the, the conflict of sin, the, the offer of, of hope. I mean, it's, it's all there. But here, because they didn't like his method, they rejected his message. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all our children. Jesus comes preaching repentance. Like he confronted them too. He didn't, he didn't pull back. He didn't let them stay in their sin and make them feel okay about their sin. There's, there's some misunderstanding about Jesus' mission and Jesus' teaching in our, in our culture today. You go and study the, the, the Gospels and you hear Jesus calling people to repent. The big contrast, there's two big contrasts at least that I think we could call out here. John was out in the wilderness and people were having to come to him to be baptized by him. Jesus was walking into their towns, walking up to their houses, sitting down with them and having meals. And he was reaching out and touching lepers and making dead people live. And so Jesus went to them. John called them to himself. That's one big contrast. But the message that was being preached was the same. Jesus preached repentance and offered hope. But instead of saying there was one coming, he's saying, I'm here. There's not another one to come. Hope is here. Like, I'm the answer. I'm the one you've been waiting on. And let me show that to you. Let me prove that to you with these acts of power, with, with making the blind, blind see, the lame walk, deaf hear, lepers be cleansed, dead people rise up, poor people hear the good news. And as he's doing that, you see, as he's doing that, he's saying, he's saying, yes, I am the one. I'm the one that John was prophesying about. I'm the one that Isaiah was prophesying about. I'm the one that God said was, was going to come and, and, and crush the head of the serpent. I'm the one. So put your hope in me. Place your trust in me. But they didn't like his message. So they attacked his method. See, the thing is, we see this happening all around us still today. People just are never satisfied. They look to all the reasons that justify themselves and prop themselves up and make them feel good about themselves. But when confronted with the truth, they seek to find an answer that denies the message. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. He has come. His name is Jesus. And he calls us not just to come and think, oh, yeah, I like him, but to come and trust him and live in obedience to him as our Lord because we have trusted him. That's his message. This childishness is exemplified everywhere we look. And outside of the church, in the culture we live in, they don't like the message of the church. Like if, if we talk about sin in the culture at large, I, am I not mistaken? Have, have, have we not heard people being, uh, calling us bigots and, and backwards and uneducated, like we just don't know enough? We're a progressive culture. We've moved past some of the antiquated rules of the Bible. Right? In fact, if if we talk about sin too much, we actually damage people. That's the message we hear. Psychology. Our psychologists have figured out that if we call people sinners, we're hurting them. That can actually be classified as hate speech in some places. See, what that reveals is a lack of belief in the, in the precious beauty of the gospel and a greater belief in what we do and what we say. And if we just find the right words, like if we come to them in just the right way and we don't ever talk about the offense of the cross... It's a rejection of the gospel. You cannot preach the gospel without at some point really, really dealing with the reason that the gospel exists. The gospel ceases to be good news if we haven't showed them why there's such bad news. If we haven't been willing to scream, stop where you're going. 
You're going to run into traffic and you're going to get hit by a car if we've never been willing to help people see the destruction that comes from our own from our own agendas and our own desires and our own ways, if we don't help people see, then how do we help them see that there's real hope offered in the cross? We're told that we're supposed to be open and affirming of all lifestyles and all choices. And and I'd say, yes, we are. (laughs) But I'd say we need to be open and affirming about the fact that every lifestyle that's rebellious and is sinful, has the hope of salvation. Let's be open and affirming, not just about people, but about the truth of Christ for people. And we're confronted by the world about being hypocrites, like you're a bunch of hypocrites, you preach this message and you don't live up to it. Absolutely, I don't. I doubt it at times. I am as, as weak, as, 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 as simple-minded, and as easy to dissuade as, as anybody else. I struggle. I have questions. I face difficulty. I have fears. But I face them, looking to my Savior for answers, looking, longing for stronger, greater belief, rather than letting them turn to rejection. I'm not, I, I am not advocating for us as a church to step into a world that doesn't want to hear our message, that wants to reject our message, and so they begin to pick apart our methods. I'm not asking you to go out into the world and be jerks. I'm not asking you to go out there and just be condemning all the time and constantly just beating people up with your words and being harsh. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness in you that will lead people to repentance. Be kind, be generous, be gracious. Meet them at the point of need. Don't be concerned about their sin rubbing off on you. Some people think we're too much like John the Baptist. And some people in the world think we're too much like Jesus. Like, we're just sellouts. But it's because they don't know who Jesus is. And because they don't know who Jesus is, they don't understand who John was. And because they don't know who Jesus is, they won't understand who we are. But that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we don't go proclaiming the gospel. Or else we begin to reject ourselves. And we're not just seeing this in the world, we see it in the church. We see it not, not, not specifically in, in this church. I mean, not specifically from people in this church, but, but there's the, the whole church growth, attractional church movement that says if you, just, if you just do all the right things, you'll gather a large crowd, and that's growing a church. And I, I don't want you to hear that I'm opposed to drawing. We want to draw a large crowd, okay? We want to use methodology that, that draws a large crowd so we can preach the gospel. And, and right now I know you're like, well, something's going wrong. Yeah. We're not drawing a large crowd. But it's not for the sake of not trying. And it's not because we're not, we're not willing to use methods. We, have, we advertise on Facebook. We tell people about uh, in our lives. Like I invite people every week to come to church with us. We have a website because we want a presence in the, in the, in the uh, uh, internet world, you know, the internet environment. We have, we have ways that we're trying to reach out to people. We do things like VBS, not just for your kids, but to invite kids from outside in so that we can affect people's lives. We use all kinds of different things. We use all kinds of different methods. Here's where we draw the line. We won't trust in those methods to actually grow the church. We have to use techniques. But if we ever start trusting in those techniques, we've rejected the gospel. The Purpose Driven Life is a, is a, is a good book. I, I, would, I would encourage you, go read it. I don't agree with everything in it. But what went wrong with The Purpose Driven Life is that everybody around America saw what was happening in Saddleback Church up in California with, Dr., with, with Rick Warren and, and all these people were excited about what was happening. And they were like, if we would just do what he says in his book, we'll grow a big church. Because they believed more in their technique. They trusted the technique more than they trusted the gospel. There's nothing wrong with being purpose-driven. There's nothing wrong with giving your life to God and living for his purposes for your life. But if you reject the gospel in the process of leaning into those purposes, 
and now you've made yourself worthwhile, now you've found all your value in what you do, you're beginning to reject the gospel. We have to be very careful. From our friends in attractional churches, it's the same kind of thing. Like, oh, oh you got to just put on this big show. I have a friend here in Springfield that had a, had a bull outside of his church, like a, 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 not a, I don't think it was a real bull. I think it was a, a, a mechanical bull. It's like, come on, let's ride the bull, you know. And That's not who I am. That's not the church we are. But I'm gonna, am I going to jump down his throat about his method? See, some people would look at us and say, because you're not that attractional, because you're not doing those, those, pulling those stunts, because you're not doing those things, that you're too much like John the Baptist. But then they're going to look at this guy and they're going to say, you're not doing a good work at all. You're too easy. You're too easy going. You don't preach the Bible. You're gonna... And there's this horrific way that we treat one another within the church. The same is true. We must trust the gospel. And the only, only reason I might say something to him is if he acted as if his bull was more important than the gospel. I don't think it is. From the legalistic crowd, we're too friendly to sinners. Like we actually go to the tasting room, the, the mother's tasting room. You know this. We have theology talks at the tasting room. And, and, and oh my gosh, you're going to places where we should not go. Good Christian people, well, you'll get dirty if you go in there. we go and we preach the gospel and we deal with the questions of life so that people can have their doubts answered and see Jesus grow big. I think that's what Jesus was doing. See, for some, we are too much like John the Baptist. For some, we are too much like Jesus because they trust something more than the gospel. What are we going to do? My hope is challenge, my plea with you is that we will deal with our childlike doubts by pursuing Christ. By running to him. And then we will put our childish rejection away and we will trust Christ and his gospel power to save us and save others. See, the, the, here's the thing. If we don't look at our own doubts as doubtable, we're not just, we're not just uh, doubting Jesus, we're rejecting him. But if we will come back to that place, where if we will come back to the center, come back to that point that we had really poured out, made, made clear through those earlier verses, if we would just come back to this place in Jesus, we find every reason to believe that our doubts in him are doubtable and he is worthy to be trusted. Let me just show you three points quickly, three potent statements that he makes. In verse 23, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That word is trapped. It's, the, it's referring to the, to the stick in a trap that sets it off. Blessed is the one who doesn't get stuck and, 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 and trapped by me. Like you just can't believe Jesus. Peter dealt with it as the idea of a cornerstone or a tripping stone, a stumbling stone. If we will come to Jesus, if we will see him as the one who we build our life on, the very purpose for which we live, the very direction that's given to us, the very ways that we live, the, the obedience that we give to ourselves, if we build our life on Christ and his work on the cross and his resurrected life, if we build our life on him, we will be built into his body. We will be part of his kingdom. But if we reject him, we will constantly be tripping over him. Verse 28, the one in the kingdom is even greater than he. Talking about John. Our value, our identity, our purpose, our, our, our greatness is tied up not in who we are, but who he is and who he's, what he's done. Outside of the kingdom, we're, we're just people, sinners in need of a savior. Inside the kingdom, we're children of the king. Our, our, our lives, our identity, our purpose is woven together with that of Christ. Verse 35, wisdom will be true, proven true. These things he said, as much as you might doubt them, as much as they might not be seeming to prove true in your life, as much as you think you might have a better way, listen to Jesus. Like I should have listened to my mom and my dad as they called out for me to quit running. 
Listen to Jesus before you run into a street and get hit by a car and face all the misery and sadness and destruction that that leads to. Only in Jesus do we find our doubts answered. If we won't turn to him, we're not just doubting, we're rejecting. Let me plead with you. Listen to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, of course we're unworthy. Of course we are sinners who need to repent. Of course we're still rebelling, still struggling with doubt, still pursuing our own desires, still living out of our own perspectives, believing in our own ability. Would you correct us in those things? Father, would you meet us in this moment like Jesus met this this people that were gathered before him? Will you meet us in this moment and call us away from rejection? Call us away from denying? Would you help us to walk in obedience, live faithfully? Seek you for answers. Turn to you for, to see our doubt undone. Spirit, will you fill us now? Will you lead us? Will you show us? Will you convict us of the sin? As, as Jesus told, told us you would, would you convict us of our sin and lead us back to, to, to the Christ? Would you use these scriptures, these verses to to call us to repentance. As you indwell us, will you lead us faithfully? Jesus, Savior, the one who has come, will you convince us? Will you answer our doubts? Will you fill us with your truth? Will you show us and convince us of who you are, what you've done, so that we can trust more fully in what you still have to do? Trust in you more fully as we sit here waiting for you to come and get us to be with you forever. I ask these things in your name, by your power and under your authority. Amen.